it's the Lord's Day. Excited to be here with you this morning. Hey, if you're new, I want you to go ahead and fill out that Connect card in your seat, or if you've been coming but you're not connected yet, after the service, we would love to trade that Connect card for a black box with secret ingredients. And so please uh, fill that out. Give it to us either in the lobby or on your way out uh, this way. And we would love uh, just to connect with you wherever you're at in your journey. Uh, to bless you and to help you as best as we can. Uh, Hey, yesterday we did Immerse, 12 hours of prayer and fasting. It was an amazing time with the Lord, super grateful for everything that he did while we were together. It was another reminder that we must dedicate ourselves to him, uh, that prayer really is the work, and that his presence is our main priority. And so thank you to those who served and to those who were able to participate We do that three times a year, and we constantly want to reiterate that we are dependent on prayer and that we love to seek the Lord, and so we're encouraged by that. Today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, so if you go ahead and open your Bible. Uh, Hey, there you go. Uh, That was a little sneaky. I was seeing if you'd catch it in the rhythm of my speaking. Okay, we're going to try that again. Let's open the Bible. Let's go! All right, all right, come on. We're going to be excited, anticipating the word of the Lord today and every day that God, literally God, is going to speak by his word to us, and we cannot be overly excited about that. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you need a scripture journal, it's our gift to you. Please raise your hand. We'd love to provide a scripture journal for you. As I say often, man shall not live by sermons alone, but by every word that comes from God. My main priority is that we would help you learn to facilitate a relationship with God yourself, to grow in a relationship with God. And so one of my goals in teaching is not just to teach you the Bible, but to teach you how to read the Bible. Uh, Because I want you to understand that when you come on a Sunday or when you listen to me or any other preacher, uh, that's really a cherry on top, right? And you get your ice cream with Jesus, okay? Jesus gives you the ice cream. I give you the cherry, okay? And so the cherry is not so much good without the ice cream. And so I want you, my heart, my heart, my heart, is that you wouldn't rely on my sermons or any other sermons, but that by the Holy Spirit in you, you would pursue the Lord yourself for yourself. That's when you're really, really going to grow. Uh, And so I really want that for you. So that book is our gift to you. Use it during the message. Use it during your devotional time. Write notes down, uh, whatever helps you engage. Uh, But take this time truly to learn not just what the Bible says, but how to read it so that you can go tomorrow and continue to read it for yourself uh, by the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And so today the message is called Can't Get No Satisfaction. All right, those of you who understand the reference and the song, yeah, okay. You have to be a certain age, I think, to really understand this. Uh, there's a few times where I'm going to say something. If you're not young enough, you won't get it. And then if you're not old enough, you won't get it. So we're just going to be a one happy family, uh, confused all morning. So it's going to be really great. Um, can't get no satisfaction. You know, and I was thinking through, I was reading first and second, I mean, first, for chapter one and two of Ecclesiastes, that just felt like the, the, the vibe, that felt like what was happening. Uh, that song was really written by Solomon thousands of years ago in the Bible, before it was ever written uh, recently uh, in our more modern times. And so uh, he's the original writer of Can't Get No Satisfaction, and that's really what we're going to see in these first two chapters. Uh, what does it look like to really get everything the world has to give you and still feel unsatisfied? I know so many of you here are now currently feeling that way in life. You just feel like, man, I can't get no satisfaction. I do not 
feel like I'm thriving, life feels fairly empty and bare. No matter what I try, it doesn't seem to make things very much better. Even when I succeed and things go well, it doesn't really give me what I thought it would. And what I hope to do today are really two things. One is to really reveal to you uh, why that is, to give you an answer for why you feel so empty, but to also to show you God's heart towards you, because God, in his very heart, wants you to experience full satisfaction, full joy, and full pleasure. This is God's intention toward you. This is his heart for you, to bless you and to give you a full life in him. And I want to show you what that looks like, and for some of you may be correct a misunderstanding in your approach to God today. I also want to remind you as we read through this book, we must remember that Solomon is the best person in the history of the world to test the meaning of life for us. As we said last week, he was the richest, smartest, most powerful person in the world with no accountability. He could literally do and have whatever he wants. Nobody, none of us have ever experienced that kind of power and authority and that kind of opportunity. And so he has tested everything, and by everything I mean everything, and he even did it without an iPhone. It's amazing. It's an amazing accomplishment for him to be able to do this. And so we want to learn from him to say, man, you've been places I I will never be, and you've tested waters that I would never be able to test, and still you're going to come back and give us a conclusion. Uh, Just scripturally, 1 Kings 4 gives you an idea of what Solomon's life was like, the magnitude of his prosperity and success, the types of things he was able to experience. So we're not going to read through all of that, but just as a reference for you to go look at, you can really get an idea of what Solomon's life was really like. It's pretty wild, uh, the kind of prosperity and things he was able to enjoy. There was really no one like him in his time at all. And so he tested with pleasure. He comes back. He gives us a conclusion. And so we would be wise to listen to him uh, so that we can learn from him. Something else I want you to notice that's very important, I think, in our, in our day and age is that Solomon, in this book in Ecclesiastes with Solomon, Solomon's a deconstructionist at heart. He's the ultimate deconstructionist. As a matter of fact, he's, he's, he's uh, deconstructing what he grew up believing. He's deconstructing some of his own faith. He's also deconstructing what the world says. And here's something that I find helpful is that the Bible's not afraid of deconstructing because something that's true is not scared to be inspected. If it's true, then the inspection only proves it to be more true. And what we're going to see is not only does the things of God prove true, but also that deconstruction is a fair game. And if we're going to deconstruct faith, if we're going to deconstruct Christian beliefs in 2021 and how they fit in, if we're going to deconstruct some of the things you were raised to believe and traditionally taught, if we're going to deconstruct those things, which the world is doing rapidly, which many of you have maybe been doing and some of your friends and family, then if deconstruction is a fair game, we must also provide the same level of thought and process through what the world is offering as well. Some of you have spent all your time taking down the things that you have learned in Christianity without spending one second doing the same thing to the world. You have deconstructed for days and years all of the faith elements, but you haven't applied that same level of thinking and process to the world. What the world is teaching you, what does the world offer? Have you applied that same level of deconstruction to that. And that's what we're going to do today. It's a fair game. And so I think it's only right. If we're going to be open to deconstruction of a Christian faith, we also ought to be open to the deconstruction of a secular worldview. What is a life like really apart from God? What does the world really have to offer? What does it come to? Here's our conclusion from the beginning. 
What the world offers when inspected and deconstructed is revealed as nothing. But what God offers when inspected and deconstructed is revealed as everything. If you take the same level of thought and same level of processing, you think both worldviews through, you peel back the banana, you get to the essence of what is really there. When you do that with what the world offers you, you come to the fact that this is really nothing. And then when you do that with what God offers you, you come to the fact and realization that this is everything. And this is what I want you to see this morning as we process through with Solomon uh, his deconstruction of what the world says and offers about how to find meaning in life. And I hope you join him in coming to the conclusion that what God says and offers is the only true and real thing. And so as we look at chapter 2, before we do that, I want to summarize chapter 1, because we're not going to get into the details as much as we are in chapter 2. And in chapter 1, the book opens kind of with this pursuit of meaning in life, this conclusion from the beginning that things seem pretty vain. There's vanity, vanity, everything seems pretty meaningless when you assess it. And in chapter 1, when Solomon tries to pursue the meaning of life, he primarily uses wisdom and intellect. It's thoughtfulness. He's trying to think through everything the world says and does. He's trying to think through everything that God says and does. He's trying to come to a conclusion using wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 13 says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So his main tool for finding meaning in life is wisdom, thoughtfulness, smarts, intelligence. He's trying to think everything through. Now, for him, this proves to be vanity. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all of it is vanity and a striving after the wind. Well, why is that? Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. This is something we've all learned practically. Maybe you haven't put it in words that way, is that when I think through my experiences with the world, when I peel back the banana of the pleasures of the world, when I deconstruct a worldview apart from God, if I do so in wisdom and really get to the bottom of it, I come out much more sorrowful because I realize that everything I thought gave me meaning gives me none. To really think through, which is what he's about to do, to deconstruct the pleasures and the ways of the world, and to use your insight to do that is going to produce much more sorrow because you are going to see the world for what it is, not what it pretends to be. And so he uses wisdom, and it doesn't provide him meaning in life. He tries to use his intellect and think things through, and this doesn't provide him meaning in life. As a matter of fact, it just makes him more sorrowful. And so in chapter 2, he switches from wisdom to pleasure. You could say he goes from sense to sensuality. He goes from wisdom to pleasure. So if wisdom and thoughtfulness, intellect, thinking things through just led to a, a dead end, so to speak, he's going to try pleasure and see if that can be the meaning of life. Can I find the meaning of life in pursuing my own pleasure? He's going to do this, I think, in five ways. I'm, I'm creating five categories from these first 11 verses in chapter 2. Where does he try to find pleasure? In parties, verses 1 through 3. Eating, drinking, being merry, basically having a good time. And projects, four through six, building, achieving, making something of your life. Possessions, seven and eight, accumulating, gathering. And people, verse eight, primarily for sexual pleasure, using people for my own personal pleasure. And uh, number five, power, being the greatest, being the best, having the most power in all of life. He inspects these five things, which are the very five things we try to use for pleasure in the world. And he's going to give us the outcome. And here's what I want you to see from the beginning. 
today that the pleasures of sin are never fulfilling, but the pleasures of God are incredibly thrilling. This is what I'm after in your heart this morning, is that you would see not only is there emptiness in the world, but there is fullness in Jesus. If you want to say it shorter, you could put this on a t-shirt, which I love to do. Sin kills, God thrills. All right? Sin kills. You say, hey, there should be a little, you know, sin kills, God thrills. Sin kills, God thrills. What I hope to do today with your heart, what I know God wants to do, is that obedience to God is much more of a pull than a push. God wants to woo you in by your desire. He wants to put a rope around your heart and pull you in as opposed to pushing you everywhere you're supposed to go. You have this concept that I'm supposed to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And so God's pushing me in that direction, but that's not what he's doing. As a matter of fact, the way he's presented the truth, the way we're going to see it today, is that God is today and throughout the scriptures wooing you and pulling you in. And he wants to put a rope around your heart this morning and pull you in by desire, to pull you in by delight, to pull you in by pleasure. Because we're going to see not only the emptiness in what the world gives, but the fullness in what God offers. And as we work through deconstructing what the world says and the pleasure that's in the world, we're going to compare it to the things that God offers you. And my prayer today is that you wouldn't be pushed into obedience because it's the right thing but that you would be pulled in to obedience because it's the best thing and because it's your thing, the thing that would provide most enjoyment for your life. So Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11, let's look at it. The first three verses, this is when he inspects the party life. Verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. So this is the test, pleasure. I'm going to I'm going to find pleasure and see if I can find meaning in life. But behold, this was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad. Of pleasure, what use is it? So I searched my heart on how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so he gets the first part, and he says, I'm going to pursue basically the party life. Not like party you think, like, I'm 20 in college, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going nuts kind of party. Okay, that's included probably in some sense. But he says that I, my heart is still guiding me with wisdom. Now, this is helpful to us because the whole world, even people apart from Christianity, would agree that pursuing a complete abandoned, just not measured, giving yourself all the way over to drunkenness and party life, that doesn't work out for anybody. The world's not sitting there saying, yeah, that's, that's you just live your life every day like that. That's not going to work out, and nobody thinks that's going to work out. Nobody that's thought it through for two seconds or done it. But what Solomon does here is he says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to eat, drink, and be married. I'm going to enjoy the things this world can give me. I'm going to enjoy a little drink. I'm going to enjoy a little party. I'm, going to, I'm just going to have good vibes, okay? Just good vibes everywhere. This is what he's saying. This is what I say a lot. Well, I say good vibes. Everybody makes fun of using the word vibes. I like good vibes. I think the Holy Spirit brings good vibes. I think all these things, okay? But this is what he's after. He's after good vibes. He's after good vibes. And he wants a good time. He just wants to have a good time. So he tests it and says, I'm going to spend my time eating and drinking, being merry. I'm not going to worry and fret. I'm not going to work too hard. I'm just going to have a good time. And when he gets to the end of that, he looks back and he says, man, this sure was vanity. I love a commentary I read. He says this, pleasure promises more than it can produce. Its advertising agency is better than its manufacturing department, which is an incredible way to say it. Did you catch that? Pleasure promises more than it can produce. Its advertising agency is better than its manufacturing department. What the world says will make you happy 
looks really good, but when it comes to producing that and manufacturing it, it actually doesn't come to be what you thought it was. Many of us, and all of us in many levels, have experienced this in many ways, the simple enjoyments of life, trying to eat, drink, and be merry, or even pursuing some level of a party life. Maybe some of you are still thinking that you're going to find life and just abandoning yourself to a good time. Solomon says from the get-go, listen, I've done it, been there, done it more than you, done it wiser than you, and it comes out empty. Now, here's what I want to do, okay? So we deconstruct that and say, okay, there really isn't a meaning of life to be found there. And God now, Psalm 4, 7 says this, or this, uh, the writer David says this about God, you have put more joy in my heart than when their wine and grain abound. So now we're comparing the two, and he looks at the party life, he looks at the wine and grain abounding, he looks at the good time, and he says, you make me happier than that. The modern day version of this is you make me happier than when the party is lit. All right? That's the modern day. If you're under 25, you understood what I just said. If you're not, you just need to go Google it, okay? It'll make sense to you later. He's saying, listen, you make me happier than when everything's awesome, than when it's just a good time, the beer's flowing, everybody's having a good time, lots of pretty women around. You make me happier than that. Now, here's why this is so important, so important. Some of you have this weird concept of Christianity that it's more like Christianity may be the right thing, but it's not the best thing. And it's like, okay, well, to follow Jesus or in my following Jesus, I have to sacrifice so much pleasure now, all this fun I have to give up now for the sake of picking up eternal life, you know? It's the right thing. Jesus is true. He died and rose again for my sins. If I don't believe in him, it's not going to turn out well for me. I need a Savior. And so it's the right thing. But what you haven't understood is not only is Jesus the right thing, he's also the best thing. It's this very weird idea that the world could offer me something better in the short term, but like a good investor, I'm denying that for the sake of the long term. Heaven. That I must sacrifice something in the short term for the sake of the long term. That although the world offers me something better now, Jesus offers me something better later, as if God could ever lose a pleasure battle with the world. Do you understand this? This is how we think. I'm deconstructing your life right now and your version of Christianity. This is the thing that I went through in my own life. God cannot lose a pleasure battle with the world. God is better later and he's better now. This is not just a long-term investment, which it is, but it's better now. The world cannot offer you something that God can. God does not lose a pleasure battle with the world. Not for one second, not for one minute, not for 10 minutes, not for an hour, not for a few days, not for a few years, not forever. God never, for any time whatsoever, loses a pleasure battle with the world. It is never, oh, I have to give up fun and pleasure now so I can pick up the right thing. No, 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 you've missed it, and that's why your Christianity is so burdensome to you. God is saying, I am the right thing and the best thing. Come receive my joy and my pleasure forevermore. And you've been trying so hard to do the right thing, but God wants to pull you in by the best thing this morning. Christianity and following Jesus is better both short-term and long-term. God never loses at any point in that cycle. He is both more fun, more exciting, more thrilling, more pleasurable, more adventurous. Any word you want to put in there, God is more than anything the world could give you for one second or for 10 years. He is better. And some of you have traded some weird version of Christianity where I do the right thing now and it sucks so that I can have the best thing later. 
And listen, Jesus does say take up your cross. There is a lot of sacrifice in following Jesus, but it's a sacrifice of the lesser thing to get the better thing. You must understand this. This is why Jesus says whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses, says this, You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is like my life verse. This is my mission in life. Anybody that's been around me long enough or under my teaching or been on my staff team or whatever, they all know this verse in my house. This verse, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So listen to me, okay, Christian, and also those of you who are still hesitant and trying to figure this out. What is God's offer to you today? Full joy forever. That's what he's offering you today. Not just follow me, it's the right thing, you don't go to hell. No, he's saying follow me and get full joy and get pleasure forevermore. That's God's offer to you if you would believe and follow him, full and forever, full and forever. It does not, simply does not get better than that, and the realization of this truth has dramatically changed my life since I was 19. To really understand that God's not the right thing, he's also the best, he is not just the right thing, he's also the best thing. Do you believe that today? He is the best thing. Listen to me. There is a type of pleasure that leaves you wanting more because it empties you out. It comes and it goes, so you have to go get more. This is like eating cotton candy, okay, right? I did some scientific research, and cotton candy literally disintegrates in your mouth. It's an amazing phenomenon. It doesn't go into your body like at all. It's gone. It vanishes on your tongue. It's like gone, gone. It just disintegrates. It's nothing. And if you want to get that experience of eating it, you have to go back and get more cotton candy. The reason why you want more is because you had some, but when you had some, it's gone, and now you don't have it anymore, and so you have to go get more. It's the same thing with why you can't eat one chip and all those different things, okay? This is the reality, why you can't eat one scoop of ice cream, okay? Because you had it, and it was good, but now it's gone, and so to get that experience back, I have to get more. This is every pleasure the world has to offer you, no matter what I'm, no matter what category. It comes, and it goes, and if you want to get more, you have to go get more because you're currently empty. It's a pleasure that leaves you wanting more because it empties you out. It comes, and it goes. Now, there is a type of pleasure from God that leaves you wanting more because it fills you up. It doesn't come and go. It comes and stays, And because it stays with you, and you have access to it at all times, and you've experienced the goodness of God at such a level, you want more. You want more because you're already full, as opposed to wanting more because you're empty. And this for many of you. Are you living from a place of emptiness or fullness? Are you always trying to re-up, right? This is the root of addiction, and we're all technically addicted to sin. And so this is our problem is we're saying, I feel empty, and I need to re-up so that I can feel full. And because what the world gives me comes, and it goes, and it's gone, I have to go get some more so I can re-up and feel full again. And your whole life is a cycle, being empty, feeling full, being empty, feeling full, as opposed to getting the pleasure and joy from God that fills you up by the power of the Holy Spirit, it comes in stand and you want more of him because you already have him, not because you're empty. This is what God is offering you this morning. Are you living from a place of emptiness or fullness? And it is God's heart, hear me, it is the Father's heart to fill you up with the joy of his presence. To fill you up with the joy of knowing God. To fill you up with the pleasure of being close to Him. To fill you up with the adventure of following Him. This is God's heart to you to fill you up 
So are you settling for living from a place of emptiness? Are you prioritizing the pleasures that come and go? Or do you prioritize the pleasure that comes and stays? So he moves from pleasure to projects, verses 4 through 6. If pleasure doesn't do it, eating, drinking, being merry, having a good time, whatever you want to call it, if that doesn't do it, just enjoying life, if that doesn't do it, if I don't find real meaning and sustenance for life in those things, then he moves on to projects. This is what he says, verse 4. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So now he switches over to projects, and this, woo, this is super appropriate for D.C. and everybody around here. People come to this city to achieve something great in life. Maybe some of you are here for that precise reason, to build a great business, to achieve something, to be something in politics, to be something in life, to get caught up in the rat race, to make it to the top. And Solomon's here saying, listen, having a good time didn't do it for me, so I'm going to find pleasure in achieving, being successful, building, planting, working hard, making great things. And how many of you now are in that very position, you Enneagram 3 achiever people, okay? This is what you live for, to build, to be successful, and you think you will find the meaning of life in building and succeeding and achieving. And so you give your whole self to a project, to a business, to whatever it is that might make you feel successful, the very thing that you're good at, and you build, and you build, and you build, you accomplish, and you achieve, and then when you deconstruct all of that, and you peel back the banana, you realize there's nothing there. And you spent your whole life building something so that you could find meaning in life, and then you didn't get any meaning in life from it. This is the position Solomon's in and the position many of you may be in, or I hopefully can stop you in your tracks because you're working yourself there towards now. Jesus, on the other hand, says, Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, which is physical provision, emotional provision, all these things that you need for life will be added to you. And so now the question is not what are you building, but Why? Are you building the kingdom of God in the thing that you are trying to achieve? Is the kingdom of God in the way of Jesus your main priority? Are you seeking first his kingdom? Are you building his kingdom or are you building your own kingdom? Because if you give your whole life to a project, to building and to achieving, but you did it for yourself to find some meaning in life, you're going to end up looking back and saying, how meaningless. But if you build your life and your business and all the things God has put in your heart by seeking first the kingdom of God, then all those things, meaning and purpose and fulfillment will be added to you. So whose kingdom are you building, yours or God's? Now here's the irony in that. If you are spending all of your time building and achieving your kingdom, then you simply are not selfish enough. Here's what I want you to understand. When you build and invest in God's kingdom, when you spend all of your life working towards what he wants, when you're prioritizing his work in his way, the return on that investment back to you is more than you could ever get by building your own kingdom. Your desires for your own pleasure aren't strong enough. They're too weak. 
And Jesus is coming and saying, listen, not only do you build my kingdom because it's the right thing to do, but when you build my kingdom, all these things will be added unto you. So for all of you people coming here to achieve and to make something of your life, I don't want you to look back and say, what did I did all of that for? Solomon's doing that for us, and he's deconstructing and saying, being a person who achieves much in life doesn't mean much unless you do it first and foremost unto God. Are you seeking and building his kingdom or your own? The next one, possessions and people. So he says, pleasure didn't do it, eating, drinking, being married, having a good time. That just, that just continued the emptiness cycle. I still feel meaningless, so I'm going to build, I'm going to achieve. Then he looks back at that, and he says, man, I built all these amazing things. I accomplished a whole lot. I still feel meaningless. It feels so empty. And so now I'm going to really start to go off the rails, and I'm going to start gathering and accumulating possessions and using people for my own sexual enjoyment. Verse 7, he says, I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and concubines, who are basically sex slaves, the delight of the sons of man. Possessions and people. If I can't find meaning in having a good time, and if I can't find meaning in building something successful, maybe I can find meaning in all the things I can accumulate. Maybe I can find meaning in getting the newest iPhone. Maybe I can find meaning in getting the next thing. Maybe I can find meaning by having a greater retirement account. Maybe I can find some assurance and some, some peace in those things. And he looks at that, and he says, I accumulated, and I accumulated, and I accumulated. Things only kings could dream of having. And in all these possessions, he found that they came to absolutely nothing. Look at that. You achieve, you accumulate, you work, you gather, and then you deconstruct it. You get to the bottom. You get to the essence of what it is, and it comes back as nothing. Jesus said, John 15, 11, I have spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. Jesus wants to give you his joy. He wants you to possess what he has. So here's what I want you to understand, okay? This is very important. It's not just, okay, accumulating, accumulating material possessions, trying to find your worth and value in those things. It's not necessarily bad to have them. It's bad to need them, and it's bad to use them for your own selfish enjoyment all the time. And so now he's saying accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. That doesn't do it for you. You have all these possessions. And so now the question becomes, well, what possession is best? Something God can give me or something I can accumulate for myself? Now, this is what Jesus says. I have spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you so that your joy might be full. So what's the greatest thing I can possess? It's the joy that comes from Jesus. What's the greatest possession in the entire universe? What's the offer that God's giving you now to believe and trust in him? It's the joy that comes from him. God is the happiest person in the history of the world. He always gets his way. He's never lonely. He's the happiest person in the history of the world. And now he says, I want to take my joy and I want to give it to you as your possession. Look, look, please, you, you got to get this. Okay, this is like me asking, okay, I'll give you a hamburger from Shake Shack or from McDonald's. Which one's better to possess, you know? And some of y'all are like, I love McDonald's hamburgers. And you're so lost. I'm so sorry. 
I don't know what to do with you. And so if you, a Shake Shack is just significantly much better, okay? So that's the point of the illustration. And if you don't get it, you're too far gone anyways. So I'm going to give you another example for those of you who love McDonald's hamburgers so much and are currently insulted. Okay, Jesus says, you can possess my joy or you can possess anything the world has to give. So it's like saying you can have a Shake Shack hamburger or a McDonald's hamburger. It's also like saying this, what house would you like to stay in, Nate Crew or Elon Musk? I'm going to go vacation. I'm going to stay at Nate Cruz's house or Elon Musk's house? This is not a hard question, and I'm not insulted. The answer is Elon Musk. Why? Because I'm sure his house is amazing. I haven't even seen it. I just picked the richest person that came to mind when I was writing this sermon. I'm sure he has an amazing house. I'm sure it's huge and super technologically advanced. I'm sure you can just talk to it, and it does everything you want it to do. You know? And it's full of Teslas, Okay? Anything you ever wanted, you know? It's like, okay, I would like to spend a few days just vacationing. You can have Nate Cruz's house or Elon Musk's house. You're like, well, duh. And now God looks at you and he says, well, you can have my joy or yours. You can possess what I have or what the world has. Come on, come on, come on. You know, it's like, yes, obviously, obviously, God is offering. He's wooing you in. He's pulling you in to say, not only am I the right thing, I'm the best thing. Do you believe it? This is the essence of what it means to walk with God. And then look in verse 8. He says, I gathered for myself all of these concubines. And basically what it means is I tested sexual pleasure to its limits. Anything I wanted to experience sexually, I did. Nobody could stop me. And I had all of these women at my fingertips. I could do anything I wanted. And I experienced every sexual pleasure you could possibly experience. And when I deconstruct and look back and reflect and get to the essence of me pursuing my own sexual desires, I still come out with nothing. And this is the very opposite of what the world wants to tell you, that sex is the ultimate end goal of life. That is why the agendas are what they are, because for anyone to deny any of your sexual fulfillment feels like a shot at your whole life. Sexual fulfillment is a god in the society that you live in. Sexual fulfillment is an idol. That's why people believe what they believe. That's why they're harping on the things that they harp on. Why? Because I should have every right to be as sexually satisfied as I want. And then we create arbitrary lines based off what we think is right and wrong because we have no real standard to live by. And you know what? You may say, well, obviously I can't. I don't have a bunch of concubines. I don't have kind of access to something like that. I can't. You know what this is called in 2021? Pornography. You want to apply this in 2021? You say, well, I got on the computer, on my phone, and I experienced any sexual pleasure at any time I wanted without any commitment, and certainly without being within the confines of man-woman marriage. And if the statistics are right, at least half of you are currently doing that and probably looked at it last night. Now here's what I'm not here to do, shame you. That's not what I want to do. I want to pull you into something better this morning. That's what God wants to do. It's my heart for you, because I know you're so stuck. And I know you feel probably so guilty. And even for those of you who are living that kind of life, let's say, okay, the pornography, but then you're crossing the line with your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Maybe some of you are even venturing outside of marriage. All these different things that you're doing, trying to pursue your own sexual pleasure for your own selfish needs so that you can experience whatever sexual high you want to experience in life. And the world is constantly affirming that everywhere you go, that your sexual fulfillment is the essence of your life. And for you to be denied sexual pleasure means you're denied the very meaning of existence. And that's a lie, and I want to come to you today and saying knowing God and being close to God is better than any sexual fulfillment you can ever have. 
And I'm going to tell you straight, you need to know that. You need to stop idolizing it. It is a gift from God, and it is an amazing thing that God gives to his children, and it is such a grace from him, but it doesn't compare to knowing him. And there's a reason why you'll never have sex in heaven, and you'll be perfectly happy. Because God is there, and he's better. Do you believe that this morning? Here's what I find, especially in regards to this, and especially because I know the foothold it has on so many of our lives and the foothold it has on you now, because I know these things, and my heart is to set you free this morning and to help you and to deconstruct for you what that is actually doing in your life. Is that God, here, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see God is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so now, now look at this. God wants you to experience him, okay? God doesn't lose a pleasure battle with sex. He doesn't lose a pleasure battle. You understand that? Knowing God and tasting God is an experience God wants to give you that's more satisfying than anything you could ever find in this world. He says, taste me, know me, test me. I will provide more pleasure to you than anything this world can give. And he says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. So here's what I want to do to help you this morning, because I have found this to be so true. So many of you in your fight against pornography, sexual temptation, crossing the line with people you should not be crossing the line with, in your fight against your own desires to fulfill these things in your own life, in your struggle with these things and your ups and downs, the reason why it often is so hard all of the time and so consistent is because you spend all of your time trying to say no and you don't spend any of your time saying yes. And here's what I mean. Yes is a way more powerful word than no. And when you walk around and all you do is say no to bad things and you never say yes to the joy of Jesus, yes to intimacy with Jesus, yes to the presence of Jesus, yes to a clear conscience, yes to a pure heart, yes to the joy and pleasure God wants to give me, you walk around and you never say yes to Jesus, you will never have the power to say no. This is my illustration for this, okay? Imagine you're in a field with a lion, okay? And even, let me say, one leg's broken, okay? He can't catch you right away, all right? And, and he's coming after you, and there's one in the middle of the field. There's a refuge. There's a shelter, and it has a strong door, and you can go in it and be safe. But here's what you choose to do. You spend all of your time running around. No, 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 no. And you're trying to run away from the lion of temptation and run away and run away. No, 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 no. I'm going to run harder. I'm going to run faster. I'm going to train. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to be more disciplined. No, 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 no. I'm going to run, run, run. And you know what's going to happen to everyone is you're going to run out of gas. You're going to run out of willpower. You're going to be weary and exhausted, and you're going to collapse, and that lion is going to eat you again. Why are you doing that? There's a shelter there. This is what it says. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Run to Jesus. Say yes to him. Run into the shelter and he will keep you safe. You're spending so much of your energy running around saying no and building accountability systems and trying your hardest to not do the wrong thing. And uh, you're trying so hard, but you're so burdened and weary and exhausted. And the reason for that is you were never made to run from the lion in your own strength, running, 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 running. God has provided a refuge for you. It's called his presence by faith in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's offering that to you as a refuge. My encouragement always is that you need to spend more time saying yes to Jesus than saying no to temptation. Because you simply don't have it in you to say no all the time. And yes is a much more powerful word. I want to set you free this morning from the shackles 
of thinking I must be sexually satisfied to find enjoyment in life. You must remember that Jesus was a single man who never even had one lustful thought. Never for one second, not for one second, did he ever dabble in or experience the highs of a sexual feeling. And Jesus was the happiest, most satisfied, fulfilled person that ever lived. Don't let culture say otherwise to you. Deconstruct what the culture says is best for you. You do not have to be sexually satisfied to be complete in life. That is a lie. Would you run to the refuge of God's presence this morning? And would you receive any gift like that as a gift from God that you certainly don't deserve and don't have to have? Don't let sex be an idol. You know, the reason Solomon pretty much threw his life away was because of his pursuit of sexual pleasure. It tells you very specifically in Kings that all of these women he surrounded himself with were his downfall. I want you to see the end from the beginning. Pursuing your own sexual pleasure however you want without a commitment to one person, man, woman, in marriage is completely and utterly disastrous for you. And following God's will for you in this is not just the right thing. It's the best thing. And you will be happier and more satisfied and find more pleasure in life to do it God's way. You have to believe this if you're ever going to be free and if you're ever going to live purely in a culture like ours. Okay, off of my soapbox. The last one, number five, power. So possessions and pleasure doesn't do it. So now he moves on to power. Simply, he is the greatest person of his day. He is the GOAT, and there is no LeBron James, Michael Jordan argument. Nobody's placing anybody up against him. He is great. He surpassed everyone who was before me. He has achieved the ultimate status and had the ultimate power. He has made it to the top. He's made it to the top. Here's the problem with being at the top, is the only place to go is down. He made it to the top, but when you make it to the top, the only place to go is down. This reminds me of Harry in Home Alone 2. How many of you have seen Home Alone 2? Okay, I need a survey. No, for real. Raise your hand. You see Home Alone 2? Okay. I was so confused last service. Still some of y'all. If you haven't seen Home Alone 2, I don't understand. Like, do you celebrate Christmas? Because how do you celebrate Christmas without watching Home Alone? That doesn't make any sense. And you don't have to have kids to do that. I used to do that when I was kidless as well, you know? So, okay, get your life right. Go watch Home Alone, one, two, three, four, this Christmas, all right? So Home Alone 2, classic. Uh, you know, they're trying to chase Kevin in New York, all right? And so they're in this old house that Kevin's hiding in. And Harry, one of the, he's the dumber criminal. He's, he's the funnier one. He has the crazy hair. He gets to the top. And uh, there's this funny scene where he finally gets access into the building. So they've been fighting with, with Kevin outside of the building. He finally gets into the building. He steps in. And for those of you who remember the scene, he goes, I reached the top. And then he takes one more step, and there's a big hole he doesn't see. And he goes, whoo, boom, you know. And he falls two stories all the way down, smacks his face on the ground. And like they always do, he miraculously survives uh, without any injuries hardly whatsoever. It's an amazing miracle. 
but this is exactly what it's like, you know? This is what, he's, this is, it's a great thought of life to say, I reached the top, so what's the next step? Down. The only place to go is down. This is why people say, like, when they win a championship, you know what's so depressing is the only way to keep that feeling is to win the next one. Why? Because you can win every game and lose that one, and where would you have gone from before? Down, you know? To achieve this greatest thing, you know, and to get to the top of your profession, to be the most successful businessman in your region, then what? What's at the top? Nothing, just down, you know? And so this is what Solomon's trying to show to us. Now, here's the beauty of knowing and walking with God, is that you never, ever get to the top. He is a limitless person. There is no ceiling. You know what heaven is? Heaven is every day learning more about Jesus. You know why heaven's so good? You know why it lasts forever? Because there's always something to see and know about Jesus. You never exhaust Jesus. You never get to the top of Jesus. You never hit a ceiling with Jesus. His joy and pleasure and revelation of himself requires an eternity to unfold. The view always gets better. You never get to the top and think, well, I've done everything I can with Jesus. Where do I go now? That happens with literally everything that you have in the world, your successes, your championships, your relationships, everything you can suck out of the world. I get to the top. I've got it. And now the only place to go is down. And Jesus, hear me, is the only person and the only resource that you cannot exhaust. There is no top with Jesus. There is no ceiling with Jesus. And so to pursue him is an ever-increasing adventure of receiving one joy after another from his presence. You never get to the top of knowing Jesus. And that's why heaven is so wonderful. So as we close here, he says, verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. Look at that. Whatever I desired, I got. None of us can say that. None of us. We've never had that kind of power. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, here is his conclusion. What is the end of the matter? What happens when you seek pleasure in parties, projects, people, possessions, and power? What is the conclusion of spending your life doing that? He says, and all of it was vanity in a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Every party, every project, every person, every possession, every experience of power finds its end as meaningless. This is what it means to deconstruct what the world is telling you you should spend your life doing. The antidote to this is Psalm 73, 28. The writer says, as for me, it is good to be near to God. Ultimately, the best thing for me is to be near to God. It is good for me to be close to God. It is good for me to know God. It is good for me to walk with God. It is not just the right thing, it's the best thing. And so the question for some of us ought to be, well, how in the world do I get near to God? How do I access all of this joy and pleasure that you're talking about? Do I come to church enough? Am I supposed to work harder, be a better person? No, 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 no. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
Why did Jesus come and live a perfect life, one you can never live? Why did he die on the cross and bear all of your sin? Why did he rise from the dead? Why does he offer you salvation in his name so that he could take you from not being with God, where there's no joy and pleasure and meaninglessness, all the way to being with God, where there's full joy and pleasure forevermore? You cannot get there by trying harder, being more disciplined, working better, coming to church more, serving more people, being a nicer person. You can't get there any other way. Jesus comes not just to save your soul from something, but to bring you to something. Right? And all you think about is, man, he saved me from hell, but he saved you from hell to God. He saved you to bring you to God, where Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is full joy and everlasting pleasure. That's why Jesus says in John 15, man, I'm speaking all these things to you so my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. I have come to give you what I have, a relationship with the Father. This is Christ's gift to you. And so for those of you who have still been skeptical and still been exploring Christianity, would you receive the offer that's on the table this morning that Christ died and rose again so that he could bring you to God, where in God's presence you can have access to full joy and pleasure forevermore. Do not waste your life on meaningless things. And for those of you that are in Christ, are you enjoying this? Jesus died, not just so that you would come to church, that you'd be a better person, not even so that you would just not go to hell. He died and rose again so that you can know God, so that you could taste and see that God is good, so that you could, as Psalm says of Psalm 43, go to God, my exceeding joy, so that you could enjoy God. Are you presently enjoying and tasting and experiencing the pleasure of knowing God? That's the offer that's on the table this morning. As a means of application, I want to give you four things I need you to write down because I want you to go live this way. I don't want you to just feel something in this moment. I want you to go live this way. Number one, God is not just someone to obey, but to enjoy. And your version of Christianity has been all obedience and no enjoyment. You do it because it's the right thing, but you haven't even done it because it's the best thing or you've forgotten. Here's where the Father's heart comes in. It is the Father's heart that you would enjoy Him. It is the Father's heart to bless you with His presence. It is the Father's heart to give you His joy. It is the Father's heart to give you His peace. It is the Father's heart to give you His satisfaction. It is God's heart. He is not obligated to do it. He is not burdened to do it. He is not upset about doing it. It is God's heart. It is what He loves to do. He wants to pull you in into this delight and this pleasure with Him. And some of you think God's heart is that you would just get it right. And I'm here to tell you, no, 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 no. God's heart is that you would love him and that he would be able to give you himself. You know, when God looks around the world and says, what is the best present I can give my children? He looks back at himself and says, me. And if I were to think, what's the best thing I can give my child? I would give them the very best thing I can. So what does God do when he says, I want to bless my children? He says, what is the very best thing they can have? And he rightly says, the very best thing they can have is me. My presence, my salvation, my life, my joy, my peace. That's what God is offering this morning. Will you be pulled into a relationship with him and stop being pushed into obedience? Number two, the desire of God is not primarily to suppress your current desires, but to surpass them. 
You need to get rid of this misunderstanding of God that he wants you to have a bad life where you don't get any joy and fun for the sake of having an eternal life. It is not God's goal and desire just to suppress your current desires. As a matter of fact, he wants to surpass them. It is God's heart to give you something better than you can give yourself. It is God's heart to manufacture something better you can manufacture for yourself. It is God's heart to surpass your dreams for your life. It is God's heart to surpass the best made plans you can make for your life. It is God's heart to surpass anything you can do for your own life. It is God's heart not just to suppress, but to surpass. And some of you have been hesitant to jump into Christianity because you think God's a killjoy. And what I'm trying to say today is that God is joy. And so come on in, receive this free gift of eternal life. And some of you in your walk with Christ are so burdened and stressed out and struggling because you think God is always trying to suppress your desires and push you down and tell you no. But God's favorite word is yes. He doesn't want to just suppress your desires. He wants to surpass them. He wants to give you something better than you can give yourself. Will you believe this? Will you enjoy walking with God because of it? Number three. This will be helpful to you in your fight against temptation. Obedience is a decision always between two pleasures. Always. One is short with a bad aftertaste, and the other is everlasting with increasing enjoyment. You need to stop saying, I need to be stronger. No, that's the bad thing. And you're thinking about it all the time, like, oh, it's so good. It feels so good. It looks so good. And you need to stop that. And you need to start saying, okay, I'm going to put these two things together. This is what God offers me, joy in his presence, a clear conscience, a pure heart, knowing him, walking in peace and in purpose. This is what God is offering me as his child. And then this is what that sin is offering me. And you need to make a value assessment every time. And every time, like I said, God never loses a a pleasure battle with the world. Obedience is always a decision between two pleasures. Always. One of them was short. With a bad aftertaste, it comes and goes. The other is everlasting. With increasing enjoyment, it comes and stays. Stop spending so much of your time trying harder to be pushed into areas of obedience. Start being pulled in by desire. Look at what God is offering you. Say yes to the better thing. Finally, number four, this has been helpful to me practically. Because God is so good and because his presence is so constantly with me, regardless of my circumstances in life, then wisdom teaches me to enjoy life as it is, not as I think it ought to be. And this will free so many of you even right now. You keep thinking about what ought to be, what you wish was, what should, and you're living in all of these places as opposed to living in what is. And this doesn't mean what is isn't hard. This doesn't mean there's not struggle and trouble. What is might be really difficult for you right now, but wisdom, because of who God is for me all the time, teaches me to enjoy life as it is. This is what Solomon's going to get at a lot. Say everything comes and goes, but the one thing that remains is God. He's always with you. Therefore, whatever gift he gives you, enjoy it now as it is. Wisdom teaches me to enjoy life as it is, not as it ought to be. And I was spending some time with the Lord yesterday. I I wrote this down for myself. I accept it as it is, not as I think it should be, and I receive it as God's gift to me. If you can look at your life right now as a follower of Jesus, including all of the troubles in present, you know, all of the good, all of the bad, all of the highs, all of the lows, and you can look at it, and with the things you might be struggling with, you can say, honestly, I accept it as it is, not as I think it should be, 
and I receive it as God's gift to me. This moment right now is God's gift to me. Tomorrow will be God's gift to you. And the secret to finding meaning and enjoyment in life is to know and love God's presence and to trust and put faith in God's plan. I accept it as it is, not as I think it should be. And I receive this very moment as God's gift to me. I pray you tell yourself that every day from here on out. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of knowing you. We thank you for the promise of full and everlasting joy in your presence. We thank you, Lord, that it is both a long-term and a short-term gain to follow you. We thank you that you are better than anything this world has to give. You do not just demand obedience, but you offer us yourself. I pray that we would be a group of people who find our full joy and pleasure in you. We love you. We thank you that you died and rose again to give us this gift. And as a people of faith, we receive it now, consciously. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Let's respond to the Lord.